Welcome to Life's Rich Tapestry, a podcast exploring the narrative of people's layered lives. Listen in on courageous conversations spoken from the heart. Gain insight into another's life as we tackle compelling topics which will expand your mind, help you gain perspective, and might even inspire you to do things differently. My name is Evelyn, and I look forward to your company. And welcome to another show of Life's Rich Tapestry. My next guest, Jane, is a journalist with 25 years' experience with print media. She began her career on Sydney's Daily Telegraph, switching to freelance with various magazine publications while raising her three sons. In 2014, her memoir, Missing Christopher, about the suicide of her middle son was published by Alan and Unwin, and in that same year, it won the Human Rights Award for Literature. Missing Christopher is the story of her middle son's shocking death and its tragic aftermath for the family. Now, since publication, she has been promoting mental health and suicide prevention through media, the medical and teaching professions, to those people suffering from mental illness or their carers and those bereaved by the loss of a loved one. So I'd like to welcome Jane to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you. Now we're going to start from the very beginning and then we'll just get to what happened. So we have, uh, I'd like you to just start off, tell us a little bit about your family. I have three boys. Mm -hmm. I still now have two. Ben is 39 and Nick is 37. And Ben lives up on in the Lake Macquarie area, and Nick is in Sydney. Raising three boys, that must have been pretty difficult. So where did you live around Sydney? The Northern Beaches. Okay, so you le- lived around the Northern Beaches. And um, so tell us a little bit about, about Christopher. Well, he was the middle child, and mm-hmm. he was... Um, he was the the funny one. You know, he's always getting into trouble and always trying to make people laugh. He had a, a naughty sense of humor and he was always looking to make people laugh. His little dirty jokes and Oh, okay. Like okay. Yeah. And so your other children, um we have Ben who was the eldest. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they did they get along or how how was the banter between the three of them? Oh, they as little boys they all got along. Ben mm-hmm. and Christopher were the athletic athletic ones mm-hmm. and Nick was the the brainiac as they called him. Oh, okay. So okay. while he was um off Playing, doing things that uh, stimulated his mind. The other two would be wrestling in the in the lounge room, playing football with, with a pair of socks. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> so they were all very very close as young boys. Okay. Yeah. Were there sort of any issues with your sons as you as they were growing up? Were they having a few issues, or uh, were they hard children to raise? Or no, the only problem occurred when they they when they all developed a mental illness. Okay. Up until then, they were just three boys going to school, right. playing football, sailing, doing all the right. normal things boys do. Yeah. Um, but they all have, had some form of mental illness all at the same time. At the same time or at the same age? Same time. Wow. And and was there a trigger for that? I can't think there would be a trigger because mm. they all would have been affected if there was one particular trigger, but then there wasn't. Right. So um, there may have been a trigger for Nick when I go back and look on it, but that wouldn't explain the other two 
becoming ill at the right. same time. And, and sorry, what were the ages of the three boys at that time? Um, Nick was 11, so mm-hmm. 11, 13, 15. Wow, that must have been an absolute shock for mm. you and your husband. Mm. So how did you handle that? Well, the first indication that there was something wrong was when Nick um, asked me to come lie down with him on the on his bed, mm-hmm. and he said to me that he was scared because the walls were coming in, moving in on him, and he and he wanted to kill people. He had no control over his mental state. So, at first, I thought, oh, that's just that that um, he's so florid. Mm-hmm. The thoughts are so florid that um, mm-hmm. it can't it can't be real. Yeah. So I didn't dismiss it, but I didn't take immediate action. And then a few other things happened, and then I thought, okay, we've got to get him some help. And what sort of help did you get then? Um, we took him to a psychologist. And what did he? What did he diagnose? The psychologist? Uh, he, Nick was not diagnosed properly for two years. Wow. So it went from um, anxiety to depression, uh, schizophrenia. Bipolar, no one could diagnose him. Oh, even OCD was one of the one of the diagnoses. And and the other two sons, the el- the elder sons, what, what were they? Ben had yeah. Ben had depression, mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't a serious case. But he he was he stayed in his room. He went to school, but he didn't he didn't get any enjoyment out of the normal activities like sailing and mixing with his friends. He became a loner. Wow. And luckily, um, we got him onto a medication and it worked straight away. So within six months, he was back to his normal self. Did he continue to take the medication or was he? Did, no. Is he, okay. he was, he was, he, he took it for about a year and then okay. he stopped taking it and he was fine. And what about Christopher? Christopher had anxiety mm-hmm. and depression, mm-hmm. but he hid it. He wow. tried to hide it. So no yeah. one except my husband and me knew. So right. he was able to hide it. Yeah. Uh, he would still go to school, still play football, still see his girlfriend and his friends. So it, yeah. it was exhausting for him. Wow. It well, must have been exhausting for you as a family mm. too. I can't, I can't even imagine. Now, does this sort of mental health issues run in your family? or? Um, there, yes, there is mental illness. I think there's mental illness in everyone's family. Yeah, I yeah, mean, we have yeah. OCD on yeah. one side, we have mm. depression on another side. It's not like it's everyone. It's just one or two people in both of our families. So it's, yeah. So to have all three sons, that would have been really difficult. Devastating. Yeah, it was been devastating. Mm. So you're you're spending a lot of time with your three sons or figuring out what's going on. How was Christopher doing in the midst of all this? Was he getting better and then or what was happening? The the problem with Christopher is that as I said he he would hide his feelings and and yeah. whereas Nick was very open and he'd tell me everything that he was feeling. Yeah. Christopher would prefer to to not be in our company so that he wouldn't have to discuss anything with us. So he ran from it, and it was very hard for, for us to to drag him back, you know, right. to keep him a, around us because at that point he was 16 and he just didn't want to face it. He didn't want anyone to know. Yeah. Um, and so he he was living life at 110% so that no one would recognise and in him, no one would think that he had a problem. Mm-hmm. So he was covering it up with being happy. I'm assuming, or, or with sport. Is that correct? Yeah. Or? So um, mm. he's 
his main aim in life was to play for the Wallabies. Um, football was everything to him. Mm-hmm. And he was the leader of the pack, if you know what I mean. If he wore a particular T-shirt, everyone else bought that T-shirt, he had the same surfboard. So he was – all of his friends looked up to him. So he felt a responsibility, I believe, to maintain that, you know, I'm okay status. Yeah, so he was a popular young man. Mm, yeah. Very. And so that would have hidden that he didn't have, he had problems because he was popular. People liked him. Tell us just what happened a week before the tragic events of. Well, that is one of the tragedies is that he was living with a young girl, 16 year old girl, because um, he didn't want to be home with Nick's illness. And he, he felt that. He knew that he was getting as sick as Nick and he and he didn't want to confront that. So he went to live with this young girl and her mother and so we lost a lot of contact. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even though I spoke to him every day and asked him to please come home, he said, not now, Mum, but I will. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's part of the tragedy. And did you get a phone call that something was wrong or? On the night? Yeah. Um, so we were at Nick's school and he was um, doing a play mm-hmm. and Nick was very sick at that point too. So we're trying very hard to keep him connected to friends and school and drama, which is what he loved. So we we got home about 10.30 and we were just getting ready for bed and the phone was ringing downstairs and mm-hmm. we didn't have a phone upstairs mm-hmm. and we missed it. It rang again so we knew it was urgent. So we ran downstairs and it was one of Christopher's friends mm-hmm. telling us to get to the beach, um, which is three or four kilometres away. And they and he said Christopher had had an accident. We knew Nick was asleep and we, and we mm-hmm. locked all the doors and we went to the to the beach and um, it was pitch dark. It was August and it was freezing cold and we saw, the first thing we saw was a woman um, standing on a pathway that led to the swimming pool and she was vomiting and I thought, oh, this is terrible and, um, and we went around to the fence which um, surrounded, which was, the cliff was, the cliff was the, there was a fence in front of the cliff and then the swimming pool mm-hmm. and I was running towards where I saw a torch and a police woman stopped me. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hyperventilating and um, I broke free after a few minutes and I ran around to where the ambulance and paramedics were mm-hmm. and the waves were crashing and it was noisy and there was no light except for torch. I saw them roll roll him onto a spinal board. So I thought, okay, he's alive. And um, they very quietly walked up the path to the to the ambulance and um, we just thought he was okay. Well, I did anyway. My husband mm. didn't. But we were standing outside the ambulance and um, they were working on him, um, intubating him and everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I just... I was just um, hoping that his leg was okay because he had a football match on in two days' time, an important one, and I was just saying, oh, I just hope his leg's okay. Yeah. And, um, yeah, then the paramedic um, came and grabbed my hand and lifted me up into the, into the ambulance and just shook his head. Mm. 
Mm. And yeah, I had to say goodbye. That must have been, I can't even imagine that must have been just so, so terrible. And, and I know this happened a few, quite a few years ago, but you, it's, you still probably have that image in your mm. mind. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, Always traumatic to even recall yeah. it, and I'm, I know I had um, some grief mm. counselling a few years after Christopher's death, and yeah. and she said, you know, you when you when you watch your child die, you get PTSD, and that stays yeah. with you. Yeah, um, and I've tried to deal with it, but <laughs> yeah, it would have, would have been real really difficult. Mm. I do remember from reading the book that. When he died, you actually wanted to see him, but your husband didn't. I had to see him. You had to My see him. My husband um, did not want to see him, but he, right. by choice he probably wouldn't have. And probably to make it more real. Um, definitely I had to have that closure. But um, I think it stems from I lost my brother when he was 23 in a motorbike accident and I wasn't given that opportunity. Okay. And we didn't even have a funeral because my parents couldn't cope with it, so I think it. I think I had to have some sort of closure. Right, right, right. Um, wow. Now, now, tell me what. So after this has happened, you're planning the funeral. How how did you plan the funeral, and how long did you have the funeral after from when he when he died? Um, my in laws were great. They came over and dealt with funeral arrangements, etc. And um. The funeral was actually six days later. Okay, really quickly. And it was at the school, is that right? Yeah, Yeah. at his school, and um, there was 1,500 people there. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was awful. I do remember in the book as well that you were at the funeral, and there was something about just standing there and everyone going through the line wasn't there and yeah i don't i don't know how that happened but um yeah. i guess we walked out first and we were just standing by the church doors and everyone wanted to hug us so i think we were there for 2 hours oh my god hugging wow. hugging, hugging yeah and that probably wasn't didn't make you feel well at all doing that yeah i, I was just exhausted you know yeah. i hadn't slept for a week and i was mm-hmm. just I was just exhausted. I mean, I, I was very grateful that everyone came. Yeah. I was just totally exhausted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so after this tragedy has happened, how – you said you went to grief counseling, but it took a while before you went to grief counseling. Is that correct? Or or you still have – you still have Ben uh, who's um, – having issues. Sorry, was it Ben or was it the Nick. other? Nick. Sorry, it was Nick who was so, so Ben was fine. Ben was fine. Yeah, but Nick. So Nick, how did Nick cope with the death of his brother? Because Nick was so sick, mentally yeah. sick, he, he didn't take anything in. Um, but internally he crashed. So um, two months after the funeral, he tried to commit suicide in um, a mental hospital. We had to mm-hmm. put him in there because he was so ill. Um, yeah, so it was a, you can imagine there wasn't enough time Mm -hmm. to grieve because we were so worried about Nick. Um, and I think you probably remember from the book that on the night Christopher died, Nick was on the phone to Lifeline. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we didn't know that until the next day. You you pl- were able to place him then in a in a mental institution, and and you just said that he he tried to also commit suicide. But after a while, was he getting better? 
Well, ironically, when he was in uh, in that mental hospital, um, his psychiatrist um, noticed his mania. Mm. Um, he'd never seen it before. He'd only seen the depressive side. Um, when Nick used to go and, and see him, he wouldn't. He he wouldn't. He would control his mania. Mm. So, it wasn't until he was in lockup in the mental hospital that his doctor saw his mania and he diagnosed him with bipolar. Okay. And so the whole regime of medication changed. And that probably made him much better. In, in well, a yeah. month, I saw a change. Wow. Um, and it it took several months for it to even longer maybe a year for it to yeah. level right but um yeah it's the, uh, that's what it worked and this doctor saved his life when do you think he started getting better and becoming more himself how old would he would have he been i'd say about 15 about 15 mm. so he was, yeah. he was very ill for 4 years wow and and what is he doing now He's married. Oh, good. Oh. Uh, he has a, a nearly two-year-old son. Yeah. He married a beautiful American girl that he met. He was actually, he was uh, doing a suicide prevention conference in Canada, and a friend of his mm-hmm. rang and said, "I've got, I've got a girl that would love to talk to you. She's having some a few issues, and yeah. would you pop in to New York and oh. come and meet her?" <laughs> and uh, he did. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and they fell in love, and um, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, oh, that is yeah. that is beautiful. And so now he's um, his whole life is suicide prevention yeah. and helping kids with mental health issues. So yeah. he he goes to schools all over Australia and talks to high school kids mainly wow. yeah. about the death of his brother. Yeah, um, he wants to have open conversations with kids and. Uh, and to ask them to be open and honest about their own mental health issues because mm. he knows that's the only way that you can prevent these suicides and prevent people getting into real mental health yeah yeah trouble yeah if you don't talk about it you can't help them yeah and and i i definitely would like him on this on this show soon that would be that'd be fantastic so christopher he died in 2002 mm. and your book came out a little over 10 years later, mm. what made you decide, I've got to really write a book about this? There are a couple of reasons. One, um, Nick, because he was so ill, couldn't remember his brother mm. at all. That mm. was one main motivation. The other motivation was I needed to get it out of me because yeah. it was killing me. Yeah. And the third motivation was I, I wanted, when, when I lost Christopher, I thought I was the only person in the world that had lost a child to suicide um, because the guilt that you feel is almost insurmountable because you as a mother, mm. if that that's your only job is to keep yeah. your child alive. And if you can't yeah. do that, you've yeah. failed. Yeah. Um, and it took me a long, long, long time to forgive myself. Mm. And I didn't want other mothers and fathers to feel that. I didn't want yeah. them to have to go through what I did. Yeah. I wanted to know that there are other people out there that are going through what they are going through or have yeah. been through what they're going through. Yeah. It's a scarring for life. 
It That's would true. be. It would be a scarring for life. And um, I do remember from your book and and that you felt alienated as well. Weren't people crossing the street when they saw you or it, it took a while to... I think what, yeah. you, what you remember from the book is that people, if they saw me, would try and avoid me yeah. because they didn't know how to react to me. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, I can understand that because I wasn't, I wasn't sane, you know, yeah. I wasn't myself. I, I wanted to die. Yeah. I didn't want anyone to be near me. So they would have picked up on that sort of vibe and they, they didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. So yeah. I could yeah. expect them to. Um, how do you keep uh, Christopher's memory alive? I, I have a problem with that because I, um, I, I, I can't think of him mm. too much. I've, I kind of put him in a little box in my heart, and yeah. then, um, uh, and and I talk to him yeah. by myself. Um, yeah. I still see some of his friends, so we can talk about him when I see them. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk to my sons about him as well, yeah. but mainly I think his memory stays alive through Nick. Because, okay, yeah. because people ask Nick about Christopher because he talks about him. Because he talks, talks about him, him. yeah. That's mainly how his memory is kept alive. Yeah. And his ashes, aren't they in your backyard? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, that's mm-hmm. lovely. So you've created a garden in the mm-hmm. back? Okay. So that- I didn't, I didn't, I always wanted him to be with me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want him to be in a drawer somewhere mm-hmm. in a funeral home. I wanted to, and he's been to six different houses now. Yeah, yeah. So he's moved around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, one thing they, they do say that after you go through a tragedy like this, that um, it does affect affect your, your marriage. And has this actually made you and Phil stronger? Or how has it, um, how is this? I think we both dealt with the grief in very different ways. Mm-hmm. And... Yes, uh, I think it's uh, 90% of marriages do break down after loss of a child. Mm-hmm. I think um, we bandy together initially for Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it probably in some ways has made it stronger, mm-hmm. but then both of us are so damaged yeah. in one way as well. So yeah. we just we just know that the two of us get it yep. and that we have to be support each other yeah. because otherwise we'd be alone. Yeah, and you have to be strong together. Yep. Yeah, and um, and now your so your son he is doing uh, the mental health, you know, going around and speaking and and um, and what about your older son? What what's what's Ben doing? Uh, ben works for a big company in Sydney. He's okay. been working from home, obviously through oh, yeah, COVID. Yeah, 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 yeah. He has two children and a beautiful wife who's a birth doula mm-hmm. and a yoga teacher and. Um, yeah, he's doing very well in the business world. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. And what are you doing now? Uh, m- mostly I'm I'm looking after my beautiful two-year-old grandson. Yeah. And I see him a lot. He's brought so much joy into my life, just as my other grandchildren did when they yeah. were little, but they've moved away. But um, mm-hmm. that's my enjoyment, being with my, my son and my daughter-in-law mm-hmm. and my little grandson, Finn. Yeah. And, um yeah, we spend a lot of time together doing things together, like going to the zoo and yeah. doing things like that. Oh, lovely. So, Jane, you've gone through a lot. How can anyone who's listening out there now, from listening to your story, what sort of hope would you give them or what sort of advice 
would you give anyone? Well, you know, lots of people said to me initially, you know, time heals and and it does to mm. some extent. You can't actually physically live with that pain forever. It does. Mm. It never goes away, but mm. it, the intensity decreases over time and slowly. Mm-hmm. But I think the main thing is I'm I'm here. Yeah. And there were many occasions when I didn't want to be and nearly wasn't. Yeah. But you have to think beyond yourself. You have to think about yeah. your children, mm-hmm. your grandchildren, mm-hmm. your husband, your wife. Mm-hmm. All those things matter. Um, and in time, you can learn to live with the pain. Yeah. It will always sit heavy within you, but you learn to carry it in a less heavy way. I love that. I really love that. And I think having this book is a bit of a legacy. It probably is hard to look at it. Or have you reread it? Or have you just kind of thought of it as it's just been a therapy? It's you've put it down or it's yeah, it's it's over for me. But I know um mm. I know a lot of people are still reading it and buying it because when Nick mm. gives a talk he'll He'll mention it, and and there there'll be people, um, boys and girls, listening to him that have lost lost a child yeah. or a brother or sister to yeah. suicide. So, and they'll take it home and let their parents read it because they're going through the same thing yeah. that I went through. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know that sort of help exists, you don't look for it. Yeah, that's I remember right. mm. when this first happened to me, going through the bookstore and trying to find books that. Um, that that other people have gone through what mm. I've gone through, and there wasn't. There was there were books about grief written by professionals, yeah, but there yeah. weren't any books from personal experience, yeah. Um, and that I would have loved that, and oh. books that you could relate to at all, you know, yeah, from, yeah. yeah, definitely. And one thing I really did enjoy about your book, it's so beautifully written. It is such a good read. So I'm going to put all the links in my show notes for anyone who would like to order your book. I guess I'm assuming they can order it from mm-hmm. uh, the website. Yeah. And and then if they, they're able to hear your son when he does the circuit. So does he do the circuit around New South Wales when he speaks about mental health? He's been everywhere in Australia, but mostly New South Wales. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm, I'm really grateful. It's so good to see you. After, thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your company. Please tune in next week to Life's Rich Tapestry, where you will hear another courageous conversation spoken from the heart.